Hello everyone and welcome to the Music and Animation All-Stars panel. My name is Kai Savas. I'm the founder of Film Music Media. I'm excited to speak with these talented individuals about how music and animation work together on some of the most iconic and beloved projects. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. So first up, uh, let's welcome uh, Ryan Shore. He is the Emmy and Grammy-nominated composer for Trick or Treat Scooby-Doo and Go Go Corey Carson, as well as numerous animated Star Wars projects. Ryan, so good to see you. Great to see you. Thank you for having Absolutely. me. Uh, next, we have a consulting producer and director for The Simpsons, including The Simpsons movie. Please welcome the legend, David Silverman. Hi, how you doing? Thanks. Hey, David, how's it going? Great, great. Uh, next, we have a talented picture editor whose work can be seen uplifting Bob's Burgers and Apple TV's Central Park. Please welcome Stephanie Early. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, Hi Stephanie. Nice, to, nice to see everyone. Thank you for having me. Yeah, all right. So next we have the founder and CEO of Foundation Media, as well as a producer on the hit animated feature, The Bad Guys. Please welcome Patrick Hughes. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? Good, good. All right. And last but not least, we have a senior producer for franchise production for Lucasfilm and producer on Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation. Please welcome Daniel Cavey. Hey, Daniel. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to, to be a part of the panel. Absolutely. So to to... So thank you so much for for uh, j uh, joining all of us tonight. Everyone taking the time out. We're all huge fans of music and animation. Myself, I also work at Cartoon Network Studios, so I'm deep rooted in uh, animation every day in, in my in my day to day job as well. So let's uh, kick off this conversation, I guess. But uh, by describing uh, maybe describing your role to people who may not know what you do, and and tell us what excites you about music and animation you know tell us what inspires you what gets you excited uh, to to go to work every day and let's uh ryan why don't we start with you well i'm a composer a songwriter a music producer music director conductor and i love animation it just happened to be that when i began my career the very first films that i scored were animated short films and um when I started my career, I was scoring short films. Uh, three of them went on to win Student Academy Awards for Best Animation. And that just sort of started all of my love for not only animation, but animators, you know, people who make it. And and I got to see how animation is made and, and how much attention and love and detail and thought goes into animation, that everything that is on the screen is deliberate it's there for a reason and and i find that incredibly inspiring so that's sort of my background is with animation and um and of course it ties in with my own childhood you know of growing up watching animation and um so i you know i i love the thing one of the things that i really love about animation is that musically it covers everything every emotion every style different instrumentations and so to me that really Sort of lights me up you know to to explore all those different things so those are some of the reasons i love animation oh absolutely uh stephanie let's hop over to you T talk to us about what inspires you about music and animation and tell us about what you do as well <laughs> yeah uh so i'm a picture editor and um i started in unscripted and reality television and i made the move to animation sort of almost by accident definitely unplanned and i fell in love with it i love the precision that it has to have that unscripted reality like you, you don't have it's sort of super chaotic <laughs> and you know i have cut animatics and have cut color and seeing how everything comes together at the end 
um, especially on a show like Central Park, which was musical numbers, score, and all having to come together under picture to be cohesive. Um, it was amazing. And tempo editing is just, it was what really drew me to editing in the first place. And so getting, being able to use that part of editing um, to do musicals, musical numbers, and even recutting color pieces once we get a score back is, we just, we're always trying to change and uplift like Lauren Bouchard shows it's music is integral to him and we're just we're constantly cutting we'll get something back that he thinks is brilliant from a composer and we'll change picture to like make sure it all comes together and I love that that's awesome I know I love Lauren yes. too I mean I, I'm I'm a fan of home movies from way back in the day so like, yep. <laughs> that's that's my jam uh David let's jump over to you uh you've been in this business for such you know a big part of your career I'm curious what what uh, inspires you about animation and, and tell us what you do <laughs> well I mean starting out as I was doing like you know as a kid drawing and uh fascinated with animation and also you know, passionate about music. So they're hand in hand and you will find a great number of uh, animators who are also musicians or they have a great, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, feeling for music because they're related. They're very related. Yeah. They're, you know, they're fourth dimensional art forms. They go with, they move through time and they're rhythmic. And um, when you're timing animation, you're thinking musically, whether you're thinking musically yeah. or not. Just like so many comedians you find, oh, they also are, drummers or they're you know musicians yeah. it's, it, it's all part and parcel and certainly growing up um you certainly notice the music in animation particularly if you're watching warner brothers shorts or you know mgm tex avery shorts or you know even the tom and jerry shorts because it's either you know scott bradley at mgm or carl yeah. stalling and uh, uh milt franklin at, at warner brothers and you know i didn't really know the names per se but i certainly knew the music and i could you know, sense the feeling of that too. And then you get into the Disney features and, you know, particularly the beginning, amazing composers uh, who did, you know, and really kind of, not only they're amazing composers, but you got to think about, well, this is early in the history of, you know, sound film. And they were sort of kind of writing the book about uh, scoring two movies, whether they're, you know, yeah. live action yeah. and animation. Basically, you know, Max Steiner with King Kong really kicked it off in a big way of, this is how you score for sound pictures. Now, right, the silent film, they did, they would score, you know, they wrote scores for accompaniment music for the silent films. But, you know, scoring for movies was different because you're working with sound effects, you're working with dialogue, it's a different deal. Uh, and so Steiner, of course, kicked it off and all these guys not too far afterwards, because Steiner is 33 and we're thinking 37 for Snow White. So this is early on. And, you know, the I don't know if you know, the first few animated films uh, features from Disney were like kind of winning Academy Awards right after one after the other. So anyhow, a long witted way of saying, yes, I adore music and animation separately and when they're fused together. <laughs> absolutely uh, uh let's jump over to daniel daniel how about yourself <laughs> uh well i also kind of stumbled into animation i spent um most of my career uh at industrial light magic working in visual effects um and then we we kind of started to dabble into animation uh with the rango project um i started working in the production team with some people that came over from dreamworks um and that's when i started to see the difference or i'm gonna say see the light uh <laughs> 
from uh, like a live action VFX uh, approach to putting a project together versus the structure and procedure and metho methodology or me the methodical process that happens with putting animation together. Um, and I just kind of really latched into that. It, it helped really help my focusing in that that kind of perspective really helped my my uh, my you know my skill sets grow. Um, and it also opened me up to some relationships. Um, and so through Rango and Jackie Lopez, um, I switched over from ILM over to Lucasfilm Animation uh, with our franchise group. And uh, that's where I got to work with Ryan Shore uh, on Star Wars Galaxy Adventures um, as we launched uh, the shorts uh, for Star Wars Kids. Um, and that being said, I've always been passionate about music, um, although I'm not a musician. Uh, um, and so I just, uh, I love seeing how all the parts come together. Uh, that's what excites me, like understanding what each group is looking for and then making that happen for them. Um, and when the music hits the, you know, the, the, the storyboard cuts and just the energy, um, just comes alive. It just, it just pulls the whole thing. Uh, and you've got a real performance. Absolutely. I'm the same yeah. way. I, I, I'm not a musician, but I got into film music journalism because <laughs> I just love music and love everything about it. And that's what inspired me to go to film school and, and brought me to sitting here with all of you amazing people. But uh, Patrick, why don't you finish us off with this and tell us, you know, you know, what do you do and, and what inspires you about animation and music? Well, music music what i do is complicated <laughs> i don't you know I, I uh but but music drives i think everything you know i mean that that's always been kind of the the beacon you know for yeah. me throughout the career whether it's like artists that that you know we work with or projects that we look at like the first time i saw bad guys i heard music in my head and it mm -hmm. ultimately wasn't what daniel ended up doing with it, you know years later but I think that's why the uh, author of the book, you know, and I connected right away. It's because when when he writes, it's music is driving, you know, his creative process. And yeah. I think that's pretty cool about about animation, where it's like even more than uh, you know live action stuff. If you if you turn off the music and you and you just kind of watch what's going on, you'd be surprised if, if you compare that experience with an animated movie versus a, a you know, it pick any other kind of live action film, the, the difference it makes and how changing the music can change your entire experience with an animated film. You could take something that's vibrant and beautiful that pops and all this and put kind of this dark, what, what, you know, uh, tone to it. And then all of a sudden it changes the whole essence of the, of the film. And that, that to me is what's cool about music and, and animation, how it all comes together. It's part of the, it's it's baked in right right from the start. So yeah, here, here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, Daniel, you mentioned that you worked with Ryan uh, before. I'm curious, has anyone, who else knows each other, who has worked with each other? Have you guys all crossed paths in your professional careers at all besides uh, Daniel and Ryan? Yeah. Yes. I haven't. I haven't <laughs> had the opportunity to work with any of you, I don't think. Just sad. I know. Yet, as, uh, uh, yeah, as we mentioned before, and yet, yet, <laughs> yeah. yet, yet. Um, but no, uh, yeah, animation is a small world. I always find it unique, especially I work in TV yeah. animation. So people hop around Disney and Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, we're all yeah. in Warner Brothers animation. So it is cool to see, you know, everyone kind of crossing paths sometimes. Um, but uh, so let's, let's, let's dive into, I want to jump over to Ryan. Uh, Ryan, I want to ask you, you've composed uh, for iconic story worlds like Star Wars, as you mentioned, and Scooby-Doo. And um, I'm curious, you know, 
how do you decide uh, when you start working on a character theme, how early on do you, you know, do you call back and reuse something if it's something that uh, has a storied, uh, you know, fan base and, and pop culture and kind of people have expectations? And how do you decide to do something new, call back to something? And at what point in the process do you start kind of working on character themes like that on those type of projects? Every project I find is different. And like, for example, when Daniel and I are working together on Star Wars, um, actually Galaxy of Adventures, I think was, so I've done three Star Wars animated series and, and each one sort of had different musical directives. And, um, uh, and it's very much what you're talking about, which is, are you gonna reference a theme or, or call back to something? So the first Star Wars, um, maybe to, to make the point that how they're all different, the first one was called Star Wars Forces of Destiny. And that one, I, I was given John Williams themes, but they're with specific direction. Like they would say, you know, it's very important as to where we use these themes. And, and that's because they're so iconic and you could kind of play them anywhere. And it's going to sound like Star Wars right away. And yeah. so that's almost like a cheat. You know, it's like you don't <laughs> want to just use it because it, it sounds like Star Wars. And so on Force of Destiny, I used his themes very judiciously and at specific times, wrote my own music all around it. Then when Daniel and I did Galaxy of Adventures, um, I actually got to use some of John's, John Williams' actual recordings, um, oh, wow. his actual recordings from the movies, and then my own original music at the same time. So that sort of brought in a different challenge, which is how do I make new recordings that I make seamlessly sound like they're blended into recordings from the 1970s. Um, and then I did another one for Star Wars, which was Galaxy, Galaxy of Adventures Fun Facts. And in that one, the directive was no John Williams themes at all, and also no orchestra. So I did all wow. with like, you know, like very wow. synthy sounding things. I felt like it was like sacrilegious. I was like, <laughs> Am I allowed to do this? But this is what I was being asked to do. Like I've yeah. never heard anything other than the orchestra with, with Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so each project is different. You know, Scooby is, is has been an interesting one because Scooby, there aren't really like themes that come back uh, between the. Right. You know, there's the main theme, the Scooby Dooby Doo. You know, we all know that the main title theme, but there aren't really like character themes, and so every Scooby film I've done has just been a new. You know, you just talk with the filmmakers and talk about what you're going to do and assign themes and 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 work from there. So every project's different. Cool. Absolutely. That's yeah. so speaking about by the way, that's I gotta say real fast, that's really interesting because the Flintstones has a lot of themes. You know, they they, yeah. they have like they the main theme which they variate, and they also the theme they didn't use, Rise and Shine, which is used in. And there's a lot of sort of catchy music that was written by Hoyt uh, Curtin. Yes. You're right, but Scooby doesn't have that, which is so interesting. Because yeah. it wasn't and like it wasn't like wildly later than the Simps than the the, the, the Flintstones. It was about right. it was about less than ten years later. Yeah. Fascinating. And there's some good tuba themes that are used in the Flintstones. Actually, it's really interesting. Uh, a very good friend of mine is one of the best tuba players around. Uh, 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 Jim Self, yeah, great suit to you, you know, Jim, and he's yeah. 
He's, he, he was uh, he's played with John Williams all the time. I, by the way, his first big break was playing the tuba in Close Encounters. Right. But oh, wow. Tommy Johnson, who was the lead guy, couldn't make the, the that particular session. Anyhow, it kind of got him like really in John's radar. Anyhow, he has a collection of tubas, including the tuba that was used. And I forget the player's name. Forgive me. Uh, on those sessions with oh. with a uh, with, uh, oh. This is the this wow. is the Flintstone tuba. That's, like, that's so cool. I'm pretty sure that 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 tuba thing was referenced, and I think Family Guy did a throwaway bit, like a, a oh, it's gag, it's where they best. just literally that. just yeah did that. Yeah, <laughs> walking with the walking the back guy with the tuba. <laughs> <laughs> well, but speaking of uh, so Ryan, you talk about kind of starting points, uh, you know, for your theme work and stuff like that, and and I'm curious about other people's kind of uh starting points. Like, what are the most inf- important steps? Or considerations that you have to take when you are um, starting on a new project. What are kind of the first things that you do when a new project kind of is on your lap? And we can go around the room. Patrick, why don't you uh, kick us off? What's the first thing you do? Uh, with what's the first thing we do with a with a project? Yeah, when you start on a project, what is kind of the first step or consideration that you make? And you know, if you have like we're starting on this a film or if something, what's the first steps uh, that you can consider? Oh. Well, I, I think going back to, to the first, I mean, I, you know, a lot of it starts with, with music because that kind of sets the tone, right? So it's like, what, what's the, the tone of this going to be? How, you know, from, from our side, whether it's from a, uh, like a sales side or a producing side or, or whatever that is, it, it's how do we, um, you know, how do we stay true to, to whatever this uh, material that, that we're working with is? And then how do we build that, you know, foundation that that's going to continue throughout? And then as, a million different ideas start and a million different people start getting involved. How do we kind of uh, retain the integrity of that piece um, you know, for, for the people we, we care about all the way until that movie is delivered. And even then, or, or, or until that series is delivered uh, even then until it gets to, um, you know, it gets to television sets or movie theaters or, or whatever. So my, my part of my process is making, making sure that, you know, we just, stay true to what we're trying to make right right from the beginning until yeah. uh, the end absolutely um the uh, yeah absolutely and that must be uh, a challenge too because i know that things go through their their different phases of production yeah. you know you hear about it all the time you know that a film is written and then it's rewritten and rewritten in all the different phases of production so that must be interesting when the music is starting as an inspiration so early on but then it doesn't get written until the end of the process sometimes Sometimes, sometimes the music, like in in the case of uh, uh, bad guys, music start was written throughout throughout the process. Which animation is such a complicated art form that and it and it's always evolving and it's always changing. And because of that, the music is always changing, and and certain things are being inserted. That that it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a production in and of itself. I mean, you guys know going through that that process, which is like I, I think the purest like art form. You know, because yeah. it, it it allows you to think in, in so many different stages of it and involve every piece of the puzzle as as it's going through it, which is kind of unusual in in uh, in this business. You know, it's it, it's I've seen it both ways, but, but by the time it gets to uh, sometimes by the time it's finished and it gets to your desk, you have to create a whole new new movie. Right. That's, you know, the minute that you, you're looking at this and you go, well, how now how do I make this my own and bring this to life in, in a way yeah. that's mine? That's pretty, pretty special. Yes. 
Well, you know, to, to that point, um, when I was doing uh, this film with three uh, Simpson writers uh, that came up with the side of this, for this film uh, outside of the Simpsons, and because I'm a consulting producer, which is why I switched from supervising director after directing the movie, I went for that to give me latitude to work on other projects. Uh, and they had this idea, it was uh, uh, Joel H. Cohen and Rob uh, Lubinsky and, uh, I'm sorry, Rob uh, Lezebnik and, um, and, uh, and John Frank came up with this idea called Extinct about these flummels who, uh, it's, it's an interesting story. Anyhow, I won't go into the whole thing, but I really wanted, and I got my very good friend, Michael Dacchino, to do the music, which is, we have a tiny budget and he agreed to do it because we're good friends along with his son, who's also Mick Giacchino, is a very good composer as well. And uh, I said, absolutely, I'd like to have you both. However, there was a point in uh, development that we were doing the story reel and presenting it, and there's a song. We decided to have this thing, have a song in here that was going to cover a lot of, you know, uh, pipe that was, you know, explanations and, with, with, and do it in the song. Well, we didn't have a song, and they weren't on board yet. So I took as much of my sense of music knowledge and I decided to write a, a temporary song to fill in that gap because we needed to present something with music. We needed to, like you were saying, Patrick, we got to cut something to music and we have to present the music. We have to have something. We can't just say it and say, does it work? And so, <laughs> so, so, so I, so I did. And, you know, and uh, we tempted it and um, it worked and it worked well enough that, well, we just stuck with that song for the film. Wow, that's so awesome. That's my, that's that's my writing cool. credit, my music writing that's process. Awesome. <laughs> so how did you create the music earlier on? Like did, were you did it on piano or did you have like a setup to, you know, oh, demo yeah. things? For, for that for that to build that demo? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I built it. I, I don't know a lot I don't have a lot of music programs. the only one I want is is uh the, the current version of print music, whatever they're calling it these days. You know, yes. finale, finale. Yeah, finale. You know, I think I've gotten like Sibelius, but I'm just like, you know. <laughs> I don't have time to learn it. Um, yeah. And I just wrote it down on that. And I wrote out the, you know, the piano part, you know, just with chords. And uh, then I wrote up a, a few uh, horn lines as well, or other, you know, things in there. And um, my playing the tuba, as I do, I've gotten a lot of sense of chord theory and how songs are, you know, oh, yes, these no these chords come by get, get time and time again you know and so i just use that sense of it and um you know just did it quickly and uh got it together uh, uh raymond percy my co-director and is, who's a very good voice uh, actor as well uh we sang the parts i'm a okay singer raymond's much better and uh we did uh what we call muppet harmony which is two-part harmony and mm -hmm. uh you know and that's what that that's the way we did it that's so cool. If I can just say, if anyone doesn't know, David, not only being, you know, a brilliant filmmaker and storyteller and producer, you play the tuba and sousaphone beautifully. And and that's how David and I actually first met was I was scoring an animated TV series called Go Go Corey Carson. And there was an episode where uh, Corey, who's the young boy, learns to play the tuba. And I needed to find a tuba player who could literally sound like they're playing the instrument like first day out of the case. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was doing the score with samples, but that's the problem. Samples are meant to sound good. Yeah, exactly. You can't, you can't get bad samples. So, you know. Exactly. And I reached out to David Cold and, and you were so nice to jump in. And when I gave David the, the direction, <laughs> there was literally nothing written out. 
it was just me saying like, you know, can you basically just make horrible sounds? And then sure. now you make a bigger, horrible sound. And this one needs to sound like it's rattling the house. And, <laughs> and so well, I can make a bad sound on the tuba. Well, I, can do that. <laughs> I, I, I got your bad sounds. I, uh, I thought you had to work hard to do those. Well, sometimes we're just trying to make sure, you know, from a storytelling point of view, you want to have at least some progression in the music, which I right. guess it's probably worked out, you know, having me do it because, you know, there are a lot of extremely good tuba players who have, I think, trouble making bad sounds, but right. they don't really want, they don't really want that, that gig. But you have the background <laughs> with storytelling as well. So the two can go together so well. Yeah. I just wrote down though, David, bad tuba player, I'm going to call you. So for the, for the, for the, so that is, that's going to be, we're going to post that now. So you're, you're the guy to go to for the for bad that. guys too. bad tuba player. <laughs> I'll, I'll vouch for David. <laughs> no, but, 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 but Ryan, you're right. It, it's like, it, you have to get somebody who's like extra talented, right. And, and yeah. to, to be able to know what, what to do, what not to do. Otherwise it's going to, it's not going to sound uh, uh, organic. You know, right, right, exactly. yeah. it was really more about storytelling than it was about tuba playing. You know, it was really about like how to be funny with an instrument. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think that's well, it's true. It's true because you've got there's a there's a comic uh, approach and you have to have a funny bone about this stuff. So, yeah, many tuba sure, players yeah. do, by the way. I mean, if you pick the tuba up, you got to have some sense. Yeah, of if you're playing that instrument, I feel like <laughs> you got to have a sense. <laughs> of I mean, come on, look at these things. Um, but let's uh i want to jump over to daniel daniel talk to us about uh for your your process and what you do what what's kind of the the most important first steps or considerations that you take when you start a project uh well i mean in the way that i can contribute to to any show like i'm always thinking about just like the logistics uh that might sound a little less fun uh than some bad tuba uh uh chords but um equally fun equally but, fun. but really i mean for me what's exciting on a, on any project is just seeing um you know the the creative vision come together um and just making sure that each each player on the team has what they need and um you know what i've been doing kind of conventionally uh, for a while is trying to get the composer involved you know as early as possible um you know sharing you know boardomatic cuts and stuff like that before they're going into layout just to like let them start like ruminating you know, on, on yeah. what it might be. Um, and then normally, you know, kind of sharing like some like early uh, work in progress animation. And then that way, by the time, you know, they come to the table with the director and the executive producers and stuff like that, and we start really doing like a, like a, a, a spotting session, um, you know, they've got a little bit more prepared uh, ideas and thoughts to what they can bring to the table. Um, and then that kind of like max, in my mind, it maximizes the time they can have uh, to actually, you know, do their part and set them up for success. Ryan, I think I put you through some pretty tight deadlines previously, but you know, uh, <laughs> these things happen. Um, that's but, the norm. <clears throat> tight deadlines are the norm. But I was going to say, um, most recently on the um, Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation uh, project, we actually had two songs that were in scene in universe songs, uh, which was super fun uh, for all of us um, on the Lucasfilm side. Uh, to get to, uh, you know, dabble in that area. And so in that instance, the lyrics were written with the script and some early music was put together um, before any of the uh, storyboards or animation work came together. And then actually kind of like what Patrick, I think maybe experiences, we were shaping the music to fit, or the, we were shaping the boards, sorry, to fit into the music. So it was a little bit backwards. 
Um, but then by the time we got around to doing our voice records and having our actors also sing, which James Arnold Taylor was very generous uh, uh, about um, to sing for Obi-Wan. Uh, yeah, it was, it was just setting the team up for success, but um, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought a little bit. It's in, in that case, it was, it was completely working backwards. So like why well, have like, this is the way we do it, you know? Um, and it was like, well, that's not going to work. So let's throw that out. And we're going to come at it from a diff totally different angle. Um, I love that, Daniel. <clears throat> the fact that you think of bringing music in early. So I know you and I have chatted about that, you know, about, about that process. And I think that's really, as a composer, I thank you because it, it's very often that a composer, <clears throat> not always, you know, sometimes composers are brought in earlier, but it's not uncommon for a composer to be brought in sort of towards the end of a process. And, and there's a lot of catch up that a composer is doing. Um, so, you know, it's like you watch the movie a few times, maybe you re read the script, you have some conversations, you do a spotting session and you're in. And it's like, you know, you've got to start writing things and 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 it's the real deal. You know, it's like these are the pieces of music and you sort of have to get get up to speed really quick. So I love that, you know, when a composer can be brought on early because it even if they're not composing anything, just to know the project exists and kind of think about it and yeah. gestate on it and dream yeah. about it, it's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, composer I, I've talked to has said that. I've, no one has said like, oh yeah, I love coming into the last two weeks, especially if it's like a replacement score or something. <laughs> Everyone, yeah, it's, I think it's integral as a, as a team too. I think it's part of the teamwork and part of making the best story. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, Daniel. <laughs> oh no, I was just going to say, it just, you know, we, I just roll that same process over like the way we work with Sky Sound. It's the same thing. Uh, so that, you know, sharing early boardomatics or animation with them well ahead of like that audio turnover so that like if there's Foley bits or some sound design elements like mm -hmm. Matt Wood, Dave Collins, those guys, you know, they're going to go out in the field or they're going to come up with some some new sounds uh, to either hit the humor or hit the drama. Um, so that by, by the time we get to the mix, just like the composer, they have everything ready to go and just mm -hmm. really focus on their part and let, let them be in the spotlight. On Central Park, since music was written with the script and it's, you know, in universe musical numbers, there were yeah. up to six per 28 minute episode is sometimes super intense, but uh, Lauren and Nora and Janelle, our EPs didn't really know what they were getting into from the beginning. And Josh Gad, who is an EP and creator of Central Park, he sort of had an idea of sort of what some of this stuff entailed on the back end. And it was on like his encouragement that we get music earlier and earlier. And so throughout the three seasons of Central Park, by the time we got to season three, our songs were locked and recorded before thematics had even started. Wow. And like stuff stuff evolved a little bit, especially mm -hmm. like those were from guest composers because we had three songs by season three, three songs by three separate guest composers. So like they had gone through demos, they had gone through ev their entire process and we had a locked piece of music with cast reported, um, which was amazing bored to that because it can infuse such life into those yeah. animatic storyboards totally but it does make it difficult to sort of meld them together because boards are boarded to the ins and outs of the song and as I'm putting them together editing the animatics we're wanting music to start to swell and have a ramp or you know sting out or fade out all of these things that are connective tissue between the whole thing and so by season three, we were having 
um, a music department temps for it and add these vamps and add these things. So mm-hmm. we had all of these musical elements right. before we even shipped overseas. Right. Wow. Yeah. We do so many songs on The Simpsons, you know, uh, a lot of musical numbers. And yes, we always get a, a you know, temp track first with a, mm-hmm. you know, with a piano or some sort of, and also with a click track as well. Yeah. Uh, and what's great about that, and you, it's, this is probably obvious to everybody, but I'll say it, it's very inspiring for the board artists and for the directors mm-hmm. to hear this because it helps you, uh, you know, figure out the imagery and the cutting. Yep when you get the music like that. And then, you know, I worked with, very closely with um, uh, uh, Cara Talve, who's our com- our composer on The Simpsons, working with Bleeding Fingers music. Uh, and um, we did this um, a Disney short for Disney Plus called Welcome to the Club, where Lisa becomes, we think a princess, but she comes, becomes a Disney villain. And we had this song that she wrote and it's very great it's very you know kind of disney-esque like but there are certain areas that oh we what do we need to extend this area and i was able to take the track that she had and just kind of double it to her to say i need two measures here so yeah. i can do this exact mm-hmm. extension and right away she came back you mean like this and i said oh that's beautiful you know and then can you shorten this oh sure it was it was great working directly with the composer as we were boarding it and in case actually in that case we were animating it and changing things that were uh you know uh jim brooks wanted can we make a bigger deal about this entrance and i said yeah we can but i'll just have to open up the track and it's no problem so Right. Yeah, it's great when you uh, have that. You know? Yeah, she's great. I've, I've talked with her before. She's so fantastic. Oh, really, really, really the, yeah. the best. Yeah. She's but fantastic. I, I will say that years ago, she actually interned with me. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> really? Yes. And now it's so exciting to see her writing the score for The Simpsons. Oh, it's That's great. Amazing. Yeah, it's great to have yeah. her. You know, and before that, we had the great Alf Clausen, you know, working for yes. many, 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 well, decades, really. The first yeah. one we did was a Halloween show, that the first Halloween show. And the music, and I did the Raven sequence. And the music he wrote for the Raven sequence, I said, wow, this is amazing music. This is really, and, you know, uh, and of course, he wrote three different, because he wrote the Kang Kodos theme, basically, for the first Kang and Kodos, and a very different score for the uh, takeoff on the Amityville Horror. But yeah, yes, it's great. It's great working yeah. with composers directly. And Alps music is legendary. I mean, recording live with, you know, orchestra, all that, like, you know, those are, I mean, yeah, he's the sound of the Simpsons from that era. I mean, you know, Alp is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but Stephanie, I do want to jump back to you before we, we move on to the next subject. For you, for you as an editor, what's kind of your, I mean, you talked about uh, getting songs finished before you even start uh, editing uh, an animatic. But I'm curious, just as an editor, what's your kind of considerations and starting points when you're starting maybe on an episode? Sure. For me, a lot of it is organizational. What are the protocols, communication, all that kind of stuff. I, I as an editor, my department sees everything in context. So mm-hmm. all elements come through editorial before or they go out to be viewed and see, you know, seen by other people at any stage. So my primary objective when I start on a project, um, if the project is all new, I can help put these protocols in place. But if I'm the new person, it is about who do I talk to at every single department? What, you know, what are our protocols established? Who, um, who and what those lines of communication are? Because you know, animation can take some time to make, but sometimes we need stuff fast. I need to know who to go to for information, um, approvals, all that kind of stuff. Um, And then 
after that, I watch everything that's available. So as an editor, we can be brought on, you know, as if you're a color editor, animatic editor, it sort of depends on the project, but Bob's Burgers has a separate animatic pre-production editorial team and a color editorial team. So mm. if you're brought mm. on only for color, you know, I would watch the entire animatic. I would watch the past seven versions of the animatic. I would just anything that I could get my hands on that helped inspire what was going to come back to me in color. I would view it, watch it, engage with it in whatever way. When I started on Bob's Burgers, I watched every season that I ever, like I just binged it on Hulu, all of it. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd been a part of the company for a long time. I just had never you know, I'd sort of watched it casually at home, but I was like, oh, I have so many things in my brain watching <laughs> television <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> casually, like fell by the wayside the past couple of years. And I consumed it so fast. It's actually like such an amazing <laughs> show. I'm ashamed that it took me this long to like watch all of it. Um, but Central Park was the same way. I started as the assistant editor um, in season one, but didn't come on until color. And so I watched mm -hmm. all the animatics, saw all of the concept art, everything since it was a new show. And I just like to get as deep into whatever world I'm going to be cutting as I can. Stephanie, I, I agree with That's you. Like, um, I think part of like seeing the vision come together, you know, is understanding that that note history, that evolution of the creative yeah. development. Um, and there could be something, you know, that was in a, a take one or an early, you know, mm -hmm. thumbnail drawing that comes up, you know, towards the end. And that's, that's the moment you're looking for to, to you know, yep. to make it work. So I love that. Yeah. And, you know, that evolving through multiple seasons on season three of Central Park, we were having trouble coming up with a better way to tell a story. It worked on the page, but when we saw it visually, it, it was difficult to wrap our heads around and I had callback of season one because I'd been on the project the whole time and we ended up reusing footage from season one and interpreting it to how we needed and it helped save budget. I mean, animation is amazing. You can do whatever you want. Television animation, you can do whatever you want on schedule and on budget. <laughs> so <laughs> really trying to like figure out ways to That's true. be as creative as possible, well, you know, without trying to have a movie budget on a television show is one one thing that we do a lot of in television animation yeah absolutely um well i, I want to jump over uh to david david uh um you know you you've worked on the simpsons which is such an iconic show that has i mean you know has lasted from generation with decade to decade multiple generations of people have grown up with it i grew up with it and now it's still and you just got a two season pickup you know so congratulations, uh, guys, keep 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 the train going. So I'm curious from your perspective, um, how has it been able to appeal to audiences uh, for this long? Has the show remained at, at the core the same throughout these these decades or has it evolved with time to appeal to new people? And what, what when you're what is the kind of the appeal of The Simpsons and how has it lasted, I guess, this long? <laughs> it, 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 it astonishes us, too. And the universal appeal just really is amazing. You know, I just, you know, but the I think there's a couple of factors, at least two I can think of. One is the characters themselves are extremely generous characters to write stories for. Homer is a really interesting. Multifaceted character. And also it's to the performers too. Dan's performances yeah. 
of Homer are really great. And they're all great. You know, Harry Shearer and Hank Azaria and Julie Kavner and Nancy Cartwright, Jarley Smith, Shress McNeil, sort of a core, you know, uh, they're just great. And they all come up with great characters. There's something about Homer at the center that really grabs you. And I think it's a testament to the, the development of the character and also the, the talents of Dan, uh, you know, doing that voice. The other thing, um, and all the characters kind of give you a lot of uh, variety and things you can concoct and different uh, stories you can tell. Um, the other thing too, is at the end of the day, uh, a lot of our humor is, takes its page from like, you know, topical issues. And mm -hmm. we don't get so political, we, we don't really go to politics too much because that dates very badly. Political yeah. humor has very short shelf life, uh, yeah. but themes, you know, don't go away. You know, uh, like that's why in the Simpson movie, well, pollution ain't going away ever. So that's easy mm -hmm. enough to have as a theme. But you know, various themes don't go away. And also, well, because you know we are uh, kind of using a popular culture and current popular culture, we always have something going on currently. And there's yeah. always and there's yeah. always something stupid going on, and uh, we thrive by from uh, the, the, the stupidity. And uh, there's there's plenty of that. As Frank Zappa once said, hydrogen is not the most abundant element of the, the universe. It's stupidity. Um, <laughs> so we have got a lot of it, and there's plenty of things to uh, make fun of. David, how do you how do you feel for the Simpsons? The the fact that the the core family, they they don't age. You know, like they're all still the same ages. Right. They've always been for for the entire run of the series. Yeah. How does that play into sort of the longevity of the, of the series? You know that that they're able, like well, Bart is still a kid. Yeah, our characters can't don't age, and we play fast and loose with time. You know, because at some point. If we keep going on into the future, I don't know if Grandpa can be a World War II veteran anymore. <laughs> to the Korean War, but but uh, or we stop telling those stories. Uh, but you know, it's uh, but yeah, it's 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 a great blessing that they you know well animation carrots don't age, do they? You know, how old is Bugs Bunny? Been around since 1940, so you know, there's Bugs there Bunny. Go. There he, he is, is now on my wall right there. Actually, it was a, there was a great book when he turned. I think when his was it his 50th anniversary? There was a book written by Joe Addison, and I think it was called, you know, uh, it's like 50 years and only one gray hair, which was pretty brilliant. <laughs> uh, <Good> title. <laughs> but yeah, it's, a, it's really kind of exciting. And, you know, we assumed we would get a pickup, but we didn't know because, you know, the, the uh, landscape of network television is, has been changing. And, uh, it was interesting because uh, we we assumed, but we didn't just today. We we found out we're very happy about that, and it's like, yeah, we're going to continue to um, eight hundred episodes, which is very exciting. Yes. At least, wow. not wow. if not beyond, but that yeah, it's it's. Amazing. But you know, we will just whatever it is. If there's <laughs> if there's anything to be be made fun of, including the the fact that the show's been on so long and we've taken different liberties in terms of what happens in their past and future whatever we'll make fun of that too so <laughs> <laughs> absolutely at the end of the day it's like you know people take this very seriously like it's it's theater man it's just it's all fake you know we can do whatever we want it's it's, yeah. it's, it's it does they, at the end of the day it's fake so the simpsons period. tells the future oh yeah you guys predict the future yeah 
You yeah. predict the future well, multiple well, times. Yeah, but I think we're going to get out of the future business. We're going <laughs> to predict the past. And, you know, David, I've watched like so it. much of The Simpsons, like, it, it, especially like earlier in the series, like it was when I really started getting into it. And yeah. you you guys covered so many different topics of life and everything that literally almost every single thing in real life would remind me of something in The Simpsons. Yeah. You know, like, well, that you know, one of the things that's also great, too, is that we get, um, you know, uh, we get more and more people in, in uh, hired, you know, into the fold in the writing staff who are younger and grew up with the Simpsons and also on the animation side. And I think that's the other thing that keeps it vibrant because we have yeah. new writers who are very excited to be working on the show that they loved as you know, growing up as kids. And now they they get to play in the in the sandbox. And the, so it just inspires, I think, even more like, you know, I don't think we've ever done a story on, you know, this. And so, you know, yeah. That's what happens. Like going back further, but you know, as far as season eight, um, or was it season well, season six? I think it was. And Rich Appel came in, and and have you ever did anything with Homer's mother? We're like, no, we never really mentioned her. <laughs> After six <laughs> seasons, we hadn't talked about Homer's mother, and he wrote Mother Simpson, you know, with Mona Simpson, yeah. and yes, yeah. uh, you know, and Glenn Close, and it's fantastic. And I enjoyed. I directed that episode. It was great. And it was, but that sort of thing keeps coming up. Have you ever done this on the characters, you know, 34 years later? It's like, yeah, we haven't done that one. Well, let's try that, you know? Wow. I, I, I just watched your uh, your GQ video that you did that you walked through all the, the, the kind of big moments of the Simpsons career. It was a nice walk down memory lane. Oh, that's that great. You, you know, I, 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 I hate looking at myself, so I haven't seen it. So I hope, uh, I, I know that came off great. I just, you yeah. know. Assume that I look like an idiot. So. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, uh, let's. Uh, I want to jump over to Pat. Uh, to Patrick. Um, Patrick, I want to ask you. You know, Foundation Media is you know working on a number of children's books uh, adapting to screen. Um, and I'm curious, how much freedom do you have working in these kind of story worlds, and and maybe using bad guys as an example of what you guys did to evolve that from the books to uh, the screen adaptation. Well, I I think it uh, I think it depends on the project, you know. So I I think with in the case of the bad guys, um, you want to stay true to the world because the world is so established. And from the mm -hmm. time that we um, set bad guys up, I mean, you keep keep in mind it's it's been through a lot of different, uh, you know, a, a lot a lot of different uh, versions of of a. Um, of a, of a of a place i'm trying to figure out the right way, <laughs> way to say this and, you know it's a long it was a five-year process so th there was yeah, a lot yeah. of, uh changes that that happened but i think what the consistent you know thing was was staying true to what this audience was so you i mean you had a book that had sold you know x amount of copies that ended up selling millions and millions of, over the yeah. course of the time that this movie was was being made so i i think the team and pierre and all the guys did a great job at staying true to this kind of world that that uh, aaron created but then it, it expanding it into into the dreamworks kind of universe you know and i think that when the source material and the other side kind of come together and and really complement each other i think that's when you get the product like you know like the bad guys so it was staying true to the source letting every step of the way other creatives that became partners in the process do their thing right but also having 
a, a pretty clear north star to, to mm -hmm. follow. So it made that process, I think, more exciting for, for people that were involved because you said, okay, we know what works. We know what the audience wants. We know where not to go. And and I and I think, um, you know, so I, I think it created a creative freedom that probably wouldn't have existed if, you know, if, if the book hadn't been there. Um, in other, with other projects, it's more of a blank canvas, you know, like Thelma, which we're doing with Netflix right now, that book was, uh, you know, the book is great. I mean, iconic people love it. It's, it's done really, really well, but because it's a, it's, it was just a picture book, you know, you're dealing with one line on each page. So it's, you know, Jared and Jerusha and Hess really had to come in and kind of build out this world. So they had a lot more freedom in the characters that got introduced and, and how they were kind of building out these, these different, uh, different worlds within the Thelma world. So it, I think it just depends on the book. I, I think it depends on um, how you do it, but you always want to make sure that you stay true to what's in, inspired, you know, inspired the process. Patrick, when, when, when you're doing that, like you're developing, you know, into a, into a, a feature film or, you know, a longer story based on like you're saying, like with Thelma, which, which probably didn't have nearly as much, story you know that that you then created depth with um do you have to you know get get when you develop ideas and if they stray in any way or create dynamics that weren't there before does it have to be sort of like vetted or approved or like how much creative freedom are you allowed to 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 do when you're working with an existing property you know it's funny <clears throat> I, i'll use aaron aaron is a very hands-on guy and and I think what was really great about DreamWorks, and and I'm not just saying this, <laughs> this is, you know, they're not paying me to say this is real. What was really good about DreamWorks is they they included him in the process every step of the way. And they made that promise when we when Aaron and I sat in the first meeting, all the way up until we were watching it in downtown LA, right? I mean, every step of the way they they served, they talked to Aaron. It was, it was a because he knows these characters so well, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like, you you know, when when you spend time and you spend time watching Bob's Burgers and, and you know, or, or you're in the Star Wars world or whatever it is, you you really start to feel like you're part of that world, you know? And, and Aaron has been living in this world for so long that they were really good about, you know, sticking with, with that process. Other guys don't, don't mind so much, right? So, it's, and, and they really want to be inspired by the other side because they don't have the answers. And then as, you know, as the film or TV side starts presenting things and they go, oh, this is great. This is the direction I want to go. And then they'll add little bits and pieces. So it, it really depends on who created that source material um, and and how involved they they want to be. And it varies. You know, I've, I've we have a number of different, I mean, for example, we're in, in production on a project right now that was just a, it was a, it was an idea. It was a synopsis and the people that are making the movie were able to kind of totally build out the world in a way that they felt served that original idea. And it's, it's a totally different experience. So hope, hope that helps. Yeah. That's no, that's cool. a, no, that's a great question, Ryan. That's uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I want to jump over to uh, Stephanie. So Stephanie, you've already touched upon this a little bit. You talked about kind of your, your editorial process with the musical numbers mm -hmm. and getting kind of the pre-record everything kind of finished lock songs. Um, but in terms of collaboration in, 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 in that, in your whole editing process, who are you working with? Who are you talking with? And you were talking about kind of creating this flow between the songs. So I'm curious, you know, what is your 
process like once you have those songs and you're kind of work on the animatic then maybe lock picture and work print and, and yeah. so forth and yeah so our me our we have an audio department and music department and then picture editorial all editorial departments but different phase uh types of editorial and that collaboration is probably the most intense like what's the mm -hmm. new audio what's current give like give me all the things specific drops trying to make milestones like in an organized manner um we also have showrunners who are constantly rewriting and wanting to make everything the best that they can within their time limits and so we're getting uh off milestone drops and trying to like you know configure and figure out how to get what we need by the next milestone which is you know how it works in television um but having those lines of communications makes it possible when we don't when our departments don't talk to each other it's it's impossible to get the right thing in front of the right people in a timely manner right. um in terms of editing i think one of the biggest um things that i've had to really learn and grasp in moving from unscripted to animation and then take this knowledge and teach every other department that i can find to teach is that light travels faster than sound. And so um, when you are cutting to music, when you are storyboarding to music, it actually doesn't work to have these hits and swells and moments in your picture match the waveforms in your frame rate, in your nonlinear editing platform. Uh, yeah. um, so figuring out what to ship what we get back like all, there are so many departments you know animation is such a collaborative effort but at some point it all comes to me and when i'm looking at that color i have to move it i just like two frames over and really <laughs> work out how that works and that's lip sync on top of music but yeah. with our central park musical numbers we would have action that hit on swells and I would have to be moving it and tweaking it around and trying to figure out if I can fix it or if it has to go back to an animator. And it was just, there's such this detail work. And um, I had to sort of explain to a lot of our production people and even some of our animators, like you're gonna see this waveform, but I'm gonna tell you what frame I need this to be on. And it's maybe, it's not gonna match your waveform, but trust me, this is the frame that it needs to be on to actually hit at that musical moment that we need to have. Um, mm. And that collaboration with the animators is huge and was huge on Central Park and even on the Bob's Burgers movie. With um, I was assistant editing on that with um, my friend Chris Fitzgerald. He was the editor. You know, going back and forth through these musical numbers and like where these moments have to hit so specifically on the frame is like the biggest part of color with music wow. and editing that is music to my no, pun pun intended that is music <laughs> to my ears because i can't tell you how much time i've spent thinking about frames like yeah. one frame this way two frames that way and it's sure. like you know yeah, yeah. that's that that you, you're describing a lot of especially in the first five years of doing the simpsons when we were doing yeah non-digitally, you know, just making sure. But actually, because of that, you know, what you're talking about, because I'm going back, because I went to UCLA in 1977, and one of the first things Professor Dan McLaughlin said was that very thing, is that sound, sound is slow, 
So visual is fast. And usually you're going to have your talking, basically, you're going to have your dialogue uh, lag by two frames, you know. So if somebody yep. makes this like this, <laughs> the pop of that, the, 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 the hard consonant is going to come two frames later. Yep. If you do it on it, it well, that didn't work. But it's together. Well, that's because, you know. <laughs> yeah, it like looks yep. weird. Sometimes people can't like put a finger on it. They're like, it just, it looks weird. And I was like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> and I nudge, I nudge it one or two mm -hmm. frames. They're like, oh my gosh, yeah. we don't have to send it to animation again. I'm like, that's. And we're yeah. still doing that too. We're still mm -hmm. doing that too. It's like, well, this is not really working. And said, well, wait till, you know, it's, it's shifted properly. You know, mm -hmm. the whole thing can be shifted and so forth. So uh, the that, whole, a whole lip sync can feel out that way, you know, and as, as yeah. well as music sync, you know. Yeah. And, and I find that same kind of thing happens not only in just like, like you're saying, like with synchronization, it, and I find it's, it, it, it's, it, it continues with like emotion, you know, like if, if I were to do something musically at a certain moment against the picture, like if, if I'm just a little early, it can feel like it's, it's leading. It feels dishon yeah. dishonest. It's almost, it's like, the, it's like the score knew something that the audience doesn't know yet. Um, so I feel like I can, it usually there's more room to go after something happens. You know, you can, you can have something happen visually and let that sit with people for a moment. And then you can comment on that musically, you know, naturally after that, but it's, usually not before. It's like, a, it's like an unmotivated camera move. You know, the camera moves mm -hmm. moving before the, per, the person is pulling the camera along, you know? Yeah. Or a head turn before the person starts talking. Just anything that sort of photographs where you're going to be. Right. I'm wow. so happy to know that other people are are swimming in these details too. <laughs> this, is, this makes me feel all warm inside. Oh, <laughs> these are these are some of the most important details. And yeah, David, you have to you have to have a, a this kind of personality to embrace the obsession uh, with some of these um, you know little micro adjustments. Oh, yeah. But it's 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 a world of difference that a frame can make uh, when something's just feeling a little bit off. Um, and that's yeah. yeah. Is that two frame slip or a partial frame? Yeah. Oh, subframe <laughs> out there. Brian, don't get into subframes. <laughs> oh my gosh! I, I spent a lot of time in subframes too. Like it's not always just even frames. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. yeah so, <laughs> the, the great animation director Tex Avery, you know, in his crazy films from the, the, the which have razor sharp comic timing. Well, he would get obsessive. He would. He kind of drew him a little nutty. I think he had like have rest periods but he would be like two frames one frame two frames one frame you know and you know but you know you're like that i'm like well do i want an in between from here to here or pop forward do i want no in between to get more impact i don't know let's try it yeah yeah that's so amazing uh i do want to jump uh, i want to jump over to dan uh daniel daniel i want to talk about uh lego star wars you know lego i mean the whole Lego series, I mean, kind of, you know, we've seen Lego games and Lego shows and movies and kind of, and they've kind of embraced pop culture and kind of made it their own. So I'm curious, um, you know, it was an, a project as interesting as Lego Star Wars is, you know, you're adding humor, you're adding kind of its own charm. And how are you able to win audiences over with that humor and charm and make it kind of its own thing, but also feel part of that Star Wars family? So I'm curious. And how does the score play into that as well? Um, well, I guess I'd start by saying um, um, <clears throat> on the humor side, uh, we get a lot of leeway because uh, we kind of refer to Lego Star Wars as canon adjacent. Uh, <laughs> so that right away gives us like that bucket dump of like yeah. we're deviating away 
you know, uh, and so um, that's 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 probably the foundation of, uh, of of what we can get away with in terms of humor and drama um, in in the in that content. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, for us, like the Star Wars kids shorts that we did with Ryan um, and the Lego Star Wars, you know, we're looking towards younger fans and stuff like that. And so mm -hmm. we have to think about where they're coming from. And uh, some of our EPs will constantly remind us, like, you know, don't get so inside baseball uh, with the, the Easter eggs and stuff like that, uh, because that might be funny to like Leland Chi, who's our keeper of the holocron. But, you know, to uh, a five year old who's watching Lego Star Wars for the first time, you know, it's it's, you know, the joke doesn't work. So um, we try to find that balance. Um, and I think, you know, like having quintessential gags, like a haircut popping off, you know, and then like relying on the music to hit that sting and have that little quick moment and then kind of keep the pacing going and keep the scene moving yeah. uh, is definitely like, you know, uh, like key parts of the the, the tools that we use. Um, but I think in the end, finding, finding a balance between like, I guess what we've heard of is like hope and humor. Um, so you've got that drama, uh, but you also have like, you know, a laugh about it. Um, yeah. And then uh, to to paraphrase a quote from Guillermo del Toro uh, that he gave us on um, on Pacific Rim, uh, he just uh, it was really important to him that all of the artists working on the show uh, were having fun uh, with their shot. And he just felt that that energy uh, was going to you know carry over. Um, and I, I think that was wise advice and very true. And um, hopefully, uh, people feel that in the projects that we do, um, because at the end of the day, it's the enthusiasm that our team brings uh, uh, to uh, ho hopefully make let people have fun. So. No, absolutely. No, Lego Star Wars is I mean amazing. I, I mean, it's just uh, I mean, the, people love it as much as the I mean, I love it as much as the the canon stuff. So yeah, canon adjacent I think is the perfect <laughs> way to describe uh, it. <laughs> I, I would say that with the the summer vacation special, it was definitely a real treat um, in terms of music. Uh, that we got Weird Al uh, to make an appearance. Oh, yeah. um, and then <laughs> to have the satire that comes naturally within the genre of Lego Star Wars, you know, match with Al. Uh, I know that David Shane, who is our screenwriter and wrote the lyrics and Michael Kramer, who is the composer uh, for the Lego Star Wars stuff, like they were just thrilled uh, to have an opportunity to collaborate with Al and um, Scarif Beach Party. I just, we just had so much fun uh, getting Vader, you know, and the Emperor into Vader. It's like, <laughs> You know, Al, Al's amazing. Cool. We've had him over at Cartoon Network on some of our productions. Yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, we, we have a lot of fun. That's at the end of the day. That's what it's all yeah. about. Well, um, I know we're, we're running a little bit long, but I, I have a few questions that I want to um, still pitch to, to the group here. Um, so I want to, um, we've and some of the questions that I wanted to ask you, we've covered a lot. I mean, we've covered so much and this is so amazing, but um, I want to just pitch this to everyone. You can jump in, whoever has one an answer. I'm wondering if anyone has like an aha moment where you figured out something uh, for a project during production or post-production, um, if it was with music, with the animation, if there was just like something you know, this, you guys were talking about moving kind of frames and you're going, aha, that's what did it. Is there, was there an, any aha moments anywhere during any of your careers where you're just like something that just clicks and the light has shown through and everything kind of comes together? Is there anything like that? Actually, I do have one and it is kind of related to music and it wasn't so much, I guess I was part of the, maybe a catalyst of it. When I was pitching the title sequence, you know, very beginning, 1989, I guess it was around May or something like that, the opening title sequence, uh, Sam Simon and Matt Groening and I kind of, and they mostly, they were 
providing me with the jokes that were going to be, you know, for the characters in the opening title sequence. And I realized because of the way the Tracy Ullman show was, Lisa's character was not developed. So we didn't really have a gag for Lisa. She, the Lisa that you know of did not exist in the, in the, in the shorts. She basically was smart, but bratty as Bart and always had the upper hand on Bart. That was sort of the, the way, so there was nothing specific about her. <clears throat> so I threw in basically a, just to hang a light on it, a gag that, you know, I knew was you know, not gonna work, but just something that they, we would work with just to, to point that out. You know, I pitched the whole thing and then I, I don't know if they brought it up or I brought it up, you know, we don't have anything for Lisa. And, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was young and green and, you know, not quite as enthusiastic as I am now. I was a little more reserved. But anyhow, so, but I did pitch out to the group. This is like with Jim Brooks and, uh, you know, um, Matt Groening and Sam Simon and all the writers of the first season. And I'm pitching it and everybody else there. And I said, well, what if she plays in the band? And what if she plays the tuba? And, uh, you know, just get the ball rolling. And I tell you, Jim Brooks said it this quickly. He said, well, I don't know about the tuba, but what if she played the baritone saxophone? You know, what if she played it really well? That could be her character. She could be the genius kid of the family that nobody appreciates. Boom. Aha. Wow. And later that day, apparently, or maybe the next day, they started writing uh, Moaning Lisa, where Lisa gets the blues and we meet Bleeding Guns Murphy. Oh, wow. Great episode. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. Was it true that Danny Elfman wrote the theme like on a napkin? I heard that story that he just like doodled the theme. I don't, I don't know, possibly, <laughs> but I don't really know. It's the what what, what what's oh, what's it called? I'm blanking out the, 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 the it's a something scale. The uh, Lydian scale. Lydian scale, yes, scale. Lydian scale, sharp four, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, I wonder where that's yeah. where it's in my head. I heard it or read it somewhere, or maybe yeah. he said it somewhere. He's like, oh, I just did that on a napkin, like at lunch or something. Or I'm just like, I don't know if it was I, just I bragging think, or I, I joke. That's, or... The, that's the echo to the Jetson theme that people hear in it because the Jetson right. theme is also a little. George Jetson, you got the Lydian scale oh, going there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dun 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 dun. dun. Mm. Yeah. But they're all right. They have a DNA connection, but it's not people. It's it's. it's Maybe inspired, but it's not. It's its own thing. Come on. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there any other aha moments that anybody have? Anyone or anything that you want to, to add? So we had a, it was it was like a problem, and I, I helped with the solution. It's sort of an aha moment, but it's something I'm really proud of. We had, um, we were going to do an instrumental piece at the very beginning of one of our episodes, and it was going to be a full sequence all instrumental telling the story of this hot dog vendor through the years and they could not figure out tonally what they wanted the music to be he was he's puerto rican so they wanted sort of a puerto rican flair but they couldn't really like figure out what the piece of music was going to be so they're like okay i guess we have to ship it without music so like okay so like stephanie you and mario can you guys like work out what shots we think maybe we should use. And I was like, yes, let's just imagine a piece of music and get some shots lined up for animatic telling this story and like fingers crossed hope for the best. Um, so we, we did that. We sort of like bloated it out a little bit to make sure we had enough frames because exactly after they told us that we were shipping without music, they said, we are also not gonna be able to do any retakes. 
on this. So you have to do it. You have to like use frames available. And I was like, okay. Um, well, animatics go to timing. And so those are, you know, our in-betweens and those can are supposed to be frame accurate to our color footage. So they had our overseas studio send rough animation early so that I, once we got the piece of music so that I could just cut a new sequence. And it was, it was like, we're just gonna trust you with this. And is this amazing composer. And we got this piece of music. I was like, oh, okay. We didn't, we don't really have a lot of the visuals that I would use for this piece of music. And so I just sort of put something together and, and used an umbrella motif. And then our, the composer loved the umbrella mo motif and then went back and like added some levels to the piece of music. And, and it ended up coming together with only like two retakes. and it was not gonna be planned to, to happen that way. And it was sort of a, a moment of collaboration that really like we needed at the end of season three. And it just really <laughs> sort of made us all come together. But um, it was so interesting how, you know, who led the cut went from music to picture, back to music, back to picture, and how yeah. we sort of inspired each other. And this was, you know, I have never, I'd never met the composer. We never even spoke. We we're just like, oh, here's this and here's this. And then, oh, you're giving me this. So well, I'm going to give you this. And, and it was just very, um, very inspiring. And I, I love that level of working together. And it was great. It was a great piece of music and it ended up working really well. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> well, um, I want to go around uh, as we kind of wind up, wind down a little bit um, and maybe just talk about everyone's favorite animated scores or animated musical <laughs> moments? Is there anything that pops into your head, whether it's something you grew up with, something that you watched recently, uh, whether it's a, 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 a moment or a song, it can be a piece of score, it can be a song or anything that really pops in your head. For me, uh, maybe it's cheating a little bit, but Fantasia for me, you know, uh, you know, Sorcerer's Apprentice was always, like that was the first movie that my mom told me that I watched as a little, little child. And I'm sure that imprinted something in my brain. And that's why mm -hmm. I fell in love with sound and images, but um and uh, for me land before time was another big influential thing for me uh with james horner's score and and uh i mean that and little foot's mother is seen you know that, that wrecked me as a child and still wrecks me as an adult so but <laughs> but we'll go around uh let's start uh, you know stephanie why don't you uh take us off is there any uh favorite animated score or animated uh musical moment i so i grew up golden age disney i was born in 83 so little mermaid will like never be unseated from my heart <laughs> no matter what really but that's just like completely nostalgia based yeah. um the score of wally sort of oh, pushes yeah. the nostalgia out i mean the way that the music takes you on this emotional journey when there's not communication just like wrecks mm -hmm. me like I just I showed it to my my kids I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and they're just like staring at the screen like they felt everything and they felt all that emotion when it wasn't being communicated verbally and I that's like the beauty of music you know yeah um and then yes. for television this is like so it seems so silly but like since I do have kids like the score of bluey <laughs> knows it but like they have the the you know main song and then the way that they use music in their animation is freaking amazing it's awesome you should check awesome. it out if you haven't watched it they're only like nine <laughs> minutes but bluey is amazing 
I hear about Blue almost every day. That's yeah. oh, <laughs> wild. So today yeah. you were today. You, <laughs> I had almost made it through the day. Boom, there's Blue. Oh, yeah, sorry, Bluey. I wrecked it. I wrecked oh, it. It's brilliant. <laughs> totally <laughs> worth it, though. Blue is totally worth it. The music is, you're, you're totally, I mean, dead on. That was yeah. that's a wild reference, and it's like so perfect. Well, Patrick, tell, tell us what's uh, your your favorite animated score or musical moment. <laughs> well, I, I, it's crazy. You, you also got Wally. I would have, I would have, I would have, I would have said that. But I, I think um, if if that's not there, I think I don't know. Nightmare Before Every Moment of Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, oh, yeah. every moment, every second, every frame. Every, <laughs> you know, and then Danny Elfman on stage this summer. If anybody saw it at the Hollywood Bowl, just doing oh, his thing. Rocking out and bringing the old stuff and then bringing the new stuff, but then right when you get in there, it's just you can't get it out of your head. I mean, it's it stays with you forever. Yeah, I saw him. He did a show. Uh, it was just like a Tim Burton show. It wasn't the, just the, the live depiction. And he had Catherine O'Hara come on the stage, and they did this. You know, they did Oogie Book. You know, uh, her, her song and his song. I mean, it was just it was a fantastic. It was at the Microsoft Theater back when it was Nokia Theater, I think. <laughs> That's mind you know those things stay stay i mean he is he's just and did you guys know he like totally rocks out and it's just like i didn't even know he was like full you know yeah, have you seen yeah, coachella his coachella said it's insane oh, he's got tats, yeah. tats, tats, tats rocking out and then i didn't know <laughs> i didn't know respectfully i didn't know the songs not because i i just but i i didn't care it was like it was beautiful i, I went with a, a few friends and we were just like that was the best concert we've seen in like five years <laughs> 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 it was crazy. We wanted to see, you know, all the all the all the, the traditional Danny, but we ended up falling in love with his rock stuff. And it just yeah. it shows you like, you know, it was just a good experience. But yeah, this is my answer. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh Daniel, how about yourself? What, what's uh what's I, in your mind? I feel like it'll come across like I'm jumping on the bandwagon, but um uh I'm with Stephanie in the sense of nostalgia. Um I was born in 75, uh, but definitely uh the Little Mermaid. Uh, yeah. is definitely one okay. uh, under the sea. Um, okay. Ironically, in high school drama class, uh, one of the exercises we had to do was sing a cappella in front of the class. Um, and uh, uh, one of my good friends, you know, I, I picked a Dead Kennedy song that I was going to do lounge style. And I thought that, that you know, it was a good, sorry, Suicidal Tendencies. Suicidal Tendencies, not Dead on DK. Uh, I, thought, I thought that was a, you know, a, a safe, you know, cool bet. And uh, my friend Ian turns to me and he's like, oh, I'm doing Under the Sea. And I was like, you are brave, brother. But but also, um, I think because it really inspired me uh, within filmmaking and storytelling in general, um, is is, uh, like Patrick, Nightmare Before Christmas, um, but not just because it's an incredible store and great uh, score and great great story. But um, uh, when I was in film school, one of our friends uh, gave us the advice to like, just listen to it on cassette. And so Mm -hmm. when I was like, you know, driving up and back and forth along the 405 as like a runner and stuff like that. I was listening to the the film just on cassette. And so you're just thinking about the scenes, but you really just hone in on the dialogue and the music yeah. and the sound effects and um, just kind of let your imagination run wild. And uh, I just, it was a, it was a pivotal experience, pivotal experience. Um, and uh, just, yeah. You can't go wrong with that. Yeah. I think listening to music yeah. while driving for me, cause I grew up, I was born in 87. And so I grew up with my Walkman being in the backseat of my parents' car and just looking out the window while music is playing. And I felt, and my dad uh, 
uh, his friend had a record store in DC and he would always bring home the samples tapes and stuff that, you know, they were to, to carry the stuff in the store. So I would just listen to all the soundtracks. So I was loving movies and that's how you just build scenes and your imagination runs wild. And I do it as an adult and I'm just zoning out driving, mm-hmm. you know, pl- yeah. blast my scores. While <laughs> my wife hates riding the car with me because we can't talk because I'm <laughs> blasting whatever it is. You know, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Ryan, how about yourself? Uh, what's your favorite uh, animated score or, or musical moment? <laughs> There are so many, um, but, you know, I'm thinking about this answer as we're all chatting about it. And and I think, you know, with the risk of repeating what other people have said, I think that some of the scores that influenced me the most and stood out um, are Disney and Pixar movies. Um, And and, and it's probably also because like Pixar was kind of coming of age at the time that I was starting to get into film scoring. So when I was studying film scoring in college, I went to Berkeley College of Music, and that's when I really started like really listening to scores and paying attention to them. And that's when Randy Newman's writing all this amazing music for like Toy Story and Bugs Life. And and of course, all the Alan Menken movies, you know, with with, um, with Disney and how beautifully all the scores and songs work with each other. And then... Um, at the risk of saying something, even though David Silverman is here in, in this, uh, in our chat, because I would say, say I would say this even if you weren't here, David. But <laughs> Alf Clausen, Alf Clausen yeah. scoring for The Simpsons, because I, I got into The Simpsons when I was in college, and so that's exactly when I was studying film scoring, and and Alf's sensibilities just are so spot on to me you know like the emotions that the, the range of styles it's like every cue i felt was just like perfect and and i remember when i was in college like transcribing that stuff and and you know like and how alf's music covers every single style and songs and instrumentations and so i think those were among my biggest influence i mean like when I sorted my my first early stuff, I was pretending to be Alf in my mind. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's I, great. That's yeah, great. That's awesome. So those are very big influences for me. Alf is Alf is, is a genius. He's so good. He's so yeah. Good. Um, he invited he treated, me to each episode. Session. As yeah. uh, I mean, he treated each scene as a, he's scoring a scene. It wasn't just dropping music in. I mean, he crafted everything. That's a, I think that's what also maybe leads to the legacy of The Simpsons, where it's like it's uh, they're scored moments they're tender moments you can make yeah. it tender you can make it funny i mean it's really yeah yeah <laughs> well da- david why don't you take us home with your uh your 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 favorite <laughs> one of my favorite cues and it's one of my favorite scores is um is is pinocchio the oh yeah pinocchio uh oh, wow. with legendary it was uh what's uh lay lay harline right and uh i think he was lead composer it also was a guy paul J- smith but and i I don't know. I think it's probably his, my favorite cue in there, one of my favorite cues in there, um, is when they're underwater. It's the, 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 you know, Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket go underwater looking for Monstro and, and Geppetto. And it's this very cool cue. It's a very cool melody. And the orchestration is so interesting. It's so interesting and evocative of being underwater. And I always, I always liked that that particular cue and that particular score but of course additionally i was always like as a kid i was always always drawn to the warner brothers scores and particularly in that one i uh, to pick one is a milt franklin score that he did for a pantomime piece uh called one froggy evening you know the only singing the only voice is the singing of the frog and, right. you know, and of I course remember that yeah and it's mixing in a lot of great you know tunes and the way it's 
told, you know, the story, the way it's orchestrated and the way he goes through different versions of Hello, My Baby and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Please Don't Talk About Me When I'm Gone, which are really great songs, you know, like that's a great exit, like, you know, when he's getting rid of the frog. <laughs> But this, generally, is all the, this is all Michigan, 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 Michigan J. Frog, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which he yeah. was named later or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it just, um, it just, uh, it's just very, it's a great, it's a great score. And fortunately, you can hear it uh, in isolation because on the uh, DVD, they just have the the score, you know, just Isolated in track, isolation, yeah. like in people like, you know, in, in between cues and something like that. But uh that's those those are those are particularly good and everything you guys have mentioned too of course you know and then you yeah. know uh, <laughs> those are uh, you know. <laughs> great absolutely and obviously great. and obviously what michael giacchino did in the in up for that great uh you know, oh, you know that sequence and i have to say a shout out to my friend ronnie del carmen um, oh yeah who, who uh you know storyboarded and created i mean that sequence is, is just static brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Everybody that was well, that's that's it. Yeah, uh, even no, Ratatouille too. Ratatouille's his score for Ratatouille oh. it hits me so hard. Like, yeah. I mean, so beautiful. So yeah, beautiful. such a gorgeous. But that score. marriage of music in in that married life sequence between yeah. you know music and picture is just perfection. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Right. I love it so much and yet i'm scared to put on the youtube videos sometimes i know it's going to make me cry. Like, I, oh, every time. Every time. Every time. Every time. Yes. Even There's, in the car. Yeah. Even in the car you're just yeah. listening to the piece because you're playing that through your head. Yeah. <laughs> well, to, to to maybe to finish this up for the night, I want to go back around one last time. And if you had any um um if you could give like one sentence and advice to anyone in in pursuing a career and what we're doing and what you all do, if you had just one sentence, one piece of advice to give, and then maybe if you want to share if there's anything that you have uh, working that you want to share with us that's coming up that you want to uh, share with with everyone, and then we can uh, and that will close us up for the night. So let's go back around. We can start with uh, we can start with Stephanie. Yeah, um, probably my my advice for people is to always be your authentic self, so that people know who you are. And always want to work with you because I think that's like my biggest thing is you know I'm terrible at networking but if I'm always myself and people always mm -hmm. know what they're getting and hopefully you know that with my my work can sort of make it work out but that's always just be yourself and find those like-minded people to work with and um, hopefully take your passion to the next level yeah absolutely um, let's go with uh, Patrick this is a tough one because you know I have I have a lot of because I want people to be successful, right? And and yeah. I think is I think what you just said was absolutely key, right? Because it all starts there. And then I think it's study. I mm -hmm. think it's you know to, because there's a lot of people that have come before you that have put a lot of great work out there that I think is so important for you to be respectful of. And and I know you think you're great and you are. But I think it's important to to understand that there that there's a process that this all came from somewhere and that, you know, and you can be creative by taking from all these amazing people that have kind of built this 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 platform, you know, out there for you to to be a fan of and, and to and to grab from. So I, I would say stay tenacious, st study, be respectful, you know, of people around you. And then I think maybe the most important part is 
try not to be such a harsh critic because it doesn't matter if it's a you know commercial about nails or a, a major motion picture people put their heart and soul into what you're watching right so try to try to be a little light-handed when you approach uh people and their creativity you know as you're building your own legacy that's my Absolutely. that's great advice that's yeah. beautiful. very well yeah. yeah um david how about you what's uh what's your advice to the world well, to that, I actually had something very similar to what you were saying, Patrick, but whatever, like when I, when I was, uh, any project I got and, you know, I, when I got out of UCLA, I was more or less freelancing, mostly, uh, um, uh, art, uh, you know, uh, commercial art more than, than, than animation, but I would do that as well. But at any project I did, I just threw everything into it, you know, regardless of, you know, what the pay was, what, who was for whatever, because I wanted to. Two things. I building my portfolio. Want to make sure people, you know, it's a small project. Maybe somebody who saw it do a bigger project, whatever. It can lead to something else. And also, you never know what that project is. It's going to, you know, kind of work out. And by the way, that was the same thing I did on The Simpsons on the Tracy Allman show. You know, both Wes Archer and I, we just worked. You know, we were paid for like <laughs> ostensibly to work forty hours, and we worked eighty hours. Why? Because we were like. This is this is our animation being shown on TV and it would be great for our portfolio, if nothing else. You know, we didn't yeah. know where it's gonna go. But if nothing else, we knew this would be a great thing. This this would be good for our portfolio and it might work out in some way. So Yeah. Here, here. Absolutely. Yeah. Um that's absolutely absolutely. Uh Daniel, how about you? Yeah, What's I mean I, I completely concur with the culmination of of everything that people are saying that um, uh, be respectful is the most important thing uh, of everyone above and below you. Uh, it, it really rubs me the wrong way when anyone comes in with an air of superiority for whatever oh, reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in fact, just today we were interviewing a PA and another producer and I were saying that, you know, if you're covering a meeting and making sure the notes are being covered, I'll go to Starbucks and get you the lattes. Like if that's the, the most important thing we can do, like there's no one's above anything. Yeah. Um, but um, but the other side of that is that you don't know anyone in in, in the room at any time, um, you know, could be that next opportunity or person you're working for or something like that. You just don't know where creative collaborations and relationships are going to go. Um, and then to David's point about, you know, working, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours, um, you know, you want you want to enjoy spending time with people, you know, beyond just the the project projects come and go, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, but for me and uh, at least working at Lucasfilm. Uh, it's the the people are the most important uh, part. Yeah, um, it's people I want to spend time with, and if you have that, then you've got a great attitude, you've got a great collaboration, you've got great communication, and the best ideas are coming forward. No, absolutely, very well said. Yeah, yeah, Ryan, how about you? Uh, take us home. What's your uh, advice? <laughs> oh, a lot of pressure. Um, I <laughs> well, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that everyone has so eloquently said. I mean. It's spot on for everything. You know, when a lot of times when people have asked me for advice, I'm always thinking about, you know, things like, you know, learn your craft and, and you know, sort of like a lot of the important things about um, how to do what we do. But <clears throat> at the end of the day, I think it's really important. And, and I should say before I say this last part, which is uh, say yes to everything. Um, I, I know I did. Uh, and, and, and I, just like you know, Daniel saying, you never know where an opportunity might come. Um, 
But I think the thing that that I, I I like to remember is is that once you've learned you know skills and crafts and things, it's really important to enjoy what we're doing. And and it it almost reminds me of something that I remember you know I've I've heard Miles Davis say you know which is like you know you you learn all of this language and vocabulary and you learn you know all this thing, but at the end of the day you kind of turn that all off and you just play. And I think it's the same thing, you know, in, in what we do. It's like there's all this mechanics to it and skill and craft and technique and stuff. But at the end of the day, um, what really resonates with people is um, is when honesty comes through and authentic, uh, authenticity and, and enjoyment. And and I think all of that will permeate through the through what we're all creating. And so it's something I think that I, I always try and keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well said. Well, I mean, thank you to everyone here. I mean, what a amazing conversation. For me, this has been actually just one of the most amazing, just, I mean, an hour and a half that we spent you know, at Park Network Studios, we've been going through a lot of changes. And as an industry, we've been going through a lot of changes. Um, animation itself is just, you know, it's a it's tough, a tough spot for a lot of people. Um, and just to talk shop and talk about inspiration like this was so inspiring. So I just want to thank, you know, David, Daniel, Ryan, uh, Stephanie, Patrick, thank you so much for all your insight and all your expertise and all your passion and inspiration. Uh, thank you to Impact 24, of course, for helping put this panel together and bringing us all together. And, uh, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us tonight, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.